From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. This Blue Sky episode will focus on global development and the remarkable work being done at the United Nations Foundation. Now, frequent listeners to this podcast will know that I used to work for Ted Turner. And my apologies in advance. I'll be talking about him some more today. But that's because of something you may not know, that back in the late 1990s, when Ted pledged his $1 billion gift to the UN, he quickly learned that an individual can't legally make contributions directly to the United Nations. So instead, he started this foundation, and the United Nations allowed him to use their name in its title. In the 25 years since, the UN Foundation has gone on to do remarkable work around the globe. And you'll learn more about that today in my conversation with UNF's president and CEO, Elizabeth Cousins. Elizabeth has been at the forefront of global policymaking and innovation for over 20 years and became the UN Foundation's third president and CEO in 2020. She's a diplomat and thought leader who has played an influential role in UN policy innovations from peace building to the Sustainable Development Goals. Before joining the foundation, Elizabeth served for several years at the U.S. Mission to the U.N. in New York. She's also worked with U.N. missions in Nepal and the Middle East, and as an analyst in conflict zones, including Bosnia and Haiti. She was previously Director of Strategy for the HD Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, which promotes and conducts mediation of armed conflict, Vice President of the International Peace Institute, where she led initiatives on global crisis management and UN reform, and director of the Conflict Prevention and Peace Forum, a research group that provides country and regional expertise to the UN on conflict and crisis situations. Elizabeth has a Doctor of Philosophy degree in International Relations from the University of Oxford, where she was a Rhodes Scholar, as well as a BA in History and an Honorary Doctorate from the University of Puget Sound. As you can see, Elizabeth has a remarkable background, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Elizabeth Cousins, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. It's great to be with you. I wanted to start with your background because in the research I've done, it seems that really from the very beginning of your career, you've been focused on international relations and diplomacy, and I'm curious to know where that interest came from. You know, I it's a, it's a great question because I grew up um, in Washington State in a relatively small town and just always had an interest in what was happening in the rest of the world. I always, I read a lot as a kid. I had a big imagination as a kid and I was just always fascinated by a combination of history and other places and just had a yen to travel. Um, when I started in my career and I got started working, especially in peace processes, that was the, the kind of context of my work. It didn't entirely thrill my parents that the first places I was going to were, uh, were war zones. But for whatever reason, I was just really, I was really drawn to those questions and, and the possibility of making peace in the midst of war. So I kind of early on got very just intrigued by how other people live, how they sort out their issues and differences. And, um, 
and that's kind of shaped my my career. Where were those first war zones you went to? So I spent a lot of time in the Balkans, uh, in the former Yugoslavia, um, a lot of time in Haiti, a fair amount of time in Nepal and in the Middle East. Those are some of the main places that I was, you know, lucky enough to have the opportunity to to do some work in. And the most recent longer stretch has been in and around the United Nations. And I know in the past you worked for the U.S. mission to the U.N. Can you explain? to all of us how that works. We know about the UN ambassador for the United States, but what, what's the US mission to the United Nations and what kind of a role did you fill there? Yeah, happily. Uh, so every country in the world belongs to the United Nations, 193 of them. Uh, and every country in the world has basically an embassy to the United Nations. So I happen to serve in the U.S. mission, they call them missions, um, to the U.N. in New York. And actually every U.N. city has missions to the U.N. where there are diplomats who are posted there. So um, the U.S. mission uh, to the U.N. does all the work that happens at the U.N. Um, in New York, the Security Council, work on development, work on human rights, uh, work on gender equality, development, you name it. And so my role, I started out um, initially running a small policy team for the what they call them permanent representatives, the top uh, ambassadors to the UN to just help think about uh, the beginning of the Obama administration, how the U.S. wanted to kind of play its hand in engaging the rest of the world at a, at a critical time. This was right after the financial crisis and there was a lot, um, you know, of stress and, and, and challenge in the world. So um, I ran a policy team for a while. And then the last few years I was there, I was um, the U.S. ambassador to essentially the development and humanitarian human rights parts of the system. It's There's a body called the Economic and Social Council. I would be shocked if many of your listeners had heard of it, but um, I was the ambassador to that. I was one of the deputy ambassadors, basically, at the, at the mission. It was an amazing job, and it allowed me to do things like negotiate the sustainable development goals on behalf of the United States and, and just work with people from countries around the world who are trying to get stuff done and solve problems together. So in terms of getting stuff done and solving problems, I don't have to tell you, a lot of people in America either think the UN is wasteful or it's anachronistic or, you know, for years we weren't paying our dues and, and that sort of thing. Clearly, you're passionate about it, and we'll talk more about the UN Foundation, but why why should people feel better about the United Nations? Why do you feel so passionate about it? Why do you think it's important? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing is kind of to go back to the origin story and think about why the UN was created to begin with. So created in 1945, out of the ashes of a horrific conflagration globally, when countries came together, uh, led by the United States, but obviously not only the United States, saying, we don't ever want to do that again. It's, you know, we, we want to prevent help future generations prevent the scourge of war was the language that they used. So it was that really basic idea that countries should work together to solve problems together, to try to avoid war, make peace. And they're not going to agree on everything, but where they can agree, they're going to try and they're going to create an institution that's going to help them do that. Now, the UN is a lot of different things, right? It's it's that kind of core idea. It's got a lot of different agencies and, and institutions that do different different kinds of work, work for children, United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, a lot of people know that, and very positively, World Health Organization, International Atomic Energy Agency. There's a whole network of institutions that have different jobs, and they're all essentially trying to do uh, solve common solve common challenges and do work that no country can do alone, uh, but that they need to do in common. And 
it is a big institution. And so like any big institution, it has some of the challenges of larger institutions. I think if you, you wouldn't have to look hard at many big businesses or governments to find some analogous challenges. But, you know, in my career, I've been lucky to work with a lot of the most kind of innovative parts of the UN system and just be really impressed by the professionals that I work with and, and the bravery of many of them. And I'll give you an example. I mean, just think about Think about what it would take to be a nuclear inspector working for the International Atomic Energy Agency. And your job last year is to go into the Zaporizhia nuclear plant to make sure it's safe and secure, which is a scary enough job under any circumstance, but you're doing it because it's in the middle of a hot war. That's that's a that's a brave thing, right, to do. And so, you know, that's why I, you know, I believe in the UN at its best. And it isn't always at its best. Plenty of failures on its watch as there are on all of ours, you know, so, um, but I believe in making it better and uh, always trying to work for its highest principles. It's interesting to learn of Elizabeth's early years in Washington state and what she describes as the innate curiosity that led her to take an interest in events around the globe from her childhood home. She's seen a lot since then and firsthand experiences in war-torn places like the Balkans give her a unique appreciation for the important and sometimes dangerous work being done by the UN around the world. And as she describes the roots of the United Nations, it's a helpful reminder that the very formation of this body was an act of bold optimism. The idea that somehow, after the terrible global conflict that was World War II, countries could come together to solve problems and seek a lasting peace. Clearly, these goals have not always been met, but I think we can all agree that the UN has made and continues to make a positive impact on the world. And as you've heard in other Blue Sky podcasts, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, that Elizabeth worked on have been very influential in the work of development professionals and social entrepreneurs around the globe. Getting back to our conversation, as I warned you, it's time to talk some more about Ted Turner. We are both very familiar with a long-term fan of the United Nations, Ted Turner. And I'll tell you two quick stories. I first went to interview at Turner Broadcasting in 1992. I just gotten out. I was about to get out of Harvard Business School. I'd never spent time south of the Mason-Dixon line. And I pull up to the old plantation-looking building. And there are three flags in front. The United States, the state of Georgia, which still had stars and bars on it. So that was a little jarring. And the United Nations flag in front of this funny, it was an old country club. And so I later learned what a passion Ted had for the United Nations. And then fast forward about five years, I think it was 1997. And we had an event in New York and I was a muckety muck. So I was at Ted's table and he came breezing in even more excited than usual. And he didn't say it to me. He said it to someone behind me. He said, you're not going to believe what I'm doing tomorrow night. I'm giving a billion dollars to the United Nations. And we all sort of almost spit our soup out. I called someone back in Atlanta. I was like, I don't know if I heard this right. And they said, did he, well, you think it's United Way? I was like, no, it's United Nations. And I, did he say a million? I said, no, he said a billion. So he then, in the next 24 hours, he figured out he couldn't write the money directly to the United Nations. So he started the UN Foundation. So that's, that's my brush with the origin story. But um, so that was 20, more than 25 years ago. So I'd love to hear you describe sort of where, you know, you came in the UN Foundation, where you think it's made a difference. And then the first thing I'd say, too, is that a sign of respect to Ted is that they even let him use the name. It is a separate 
it's obviously related, but it's a separate organization from the UN. So I'm, I'm just saying a lot, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on the UN, why you were attracted, UN Foundation, why you were attracted to it and, and doing the work you do. Yeah, that was a really big move. And it's worth reminding people when he did that, it was more than a third of his net worth, which is more than any philanthropist today has <laughs> contributed proportionally. And it was actually before even the Gates Foundation was created. So it really was the first of a series of big moves. And I, you know, I think we all owe him a huge, huge debt for that. So in 25 years, and we are actually keeping lists of our greatest hits. So there are a lot, there are a lot of things to look back on. But you know, I just a few a few types of things we've done that I'd love to 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 say a little bit about. So I'm going to give you one very recent example, which is something we did during COVID at the beginning uh, of the pandemic, at the very beginning, at the middle of February, before it had been fully acknowledged as a, as a full-blown pandemic, the World Health Organization rang us up. We've worked with them for a lot over the years and said, we're going to need help and financial support. And we're not sure, and we don't want to leave a stone unturned. Could you help us? And so in a few weeks, we created something called the COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund, launched it on March 13th, if you remember where we all were on, in March in 2020. And we thought it would be a great service and we'd be so fortunate if we were able to raise maybe $20, $30 million. We raised $250 million oh within a handful of months. And you started March 13th. That was early. We started on March 13th. We we, we sort of looked at each other and we said, we think this is going to be a really big big deal. <laughs> and we and we need to leave no stone unturned. And it's, and it's one of the nice attributes of the UN Foundation. We have the flexibility. We can do that. And so we kind of turned on a dime. We we got really lucky. We did a lot of things we'd never done before. We fundraised in every possible corner of the world. We in the end we had contributions from six hundred and fifty thousand people in one hundred and ninety countries. We uh, had contributions from over one hundred and fifty companies and organizations globally. And when they did all the you know number crunching and evaluation at the end. Turns out that more than 50% of the PPE that went to low and middle income countries in 2020 was funded from this fund. It funded a whole bunch of things, but that was among them. And so, you know, if you're a company that gave 10 million and some of them did, or if you're an individual who gave $5 and that was many of those small individual contributions, you can take credit for that. You can feel good about that because that was something you did. I mean, it's just, it was amazing. So having the, like the privilege of, of being in an organization where, we could provide an opportunity for people's own philanthropic or, you know, just their desire to make a difference uh, in that really critical moment when everybody was so freaked out and scared and trying to figure out, you know, how big this was even going to be was just an incredible experience. And I think I think we'll go down as one of UNF's um, really signal contributions. Another example is that we have had we've had a wonderful track record, and this goes back from the very beginning, in being a platform where different coalitions can come together to solve a problem. And so we try to create space for that to happen for business leaders, civil society leaders, UN leaders to work together on on something that needs to be done, and we create a space for that to happen. And we've done that in a whole bunch of uh, areas, whether it's sustainable energy, on climate, on family planning clean cooking, on adolescent girls' uh, empowerment. So it's been a really wonderful place to watch a lot of ingenuity and invention and collaboration happen. And that's part of our job. We see it to create space for that in ways that also the UN can connect to it. Um, so it's part of the larger way of solving problems that the UN itself is eager to do. I mean, one thing you, you know, I think is really healthy 
in the way the UN's evolved over the last 20 plus years. So UN leaders know that they know the UN isn't everything. They just, and they know it needs partners. So they need to work. You know, we all have to band together to solve some of these big challenges. And so we create a little, a, a little way for them to, to do that. And another project I believe you were involved in, and it may have been before your time, but I don't think so, uh, was Nothing But Nets. Oh, yeah. There's so many. I don't know where to start. So, (laughs) Well, Nothing But Nets became kind of a household name, I think, but but you all never really got the credit for it, not that you wanted it, but an amazing program. Can you just describe that for people who don't know or have forgotten what Nothing But Nets is all about and what the impact has been? So it did start well before my time, and you may know more about the original history, but it actually started with with Sports Illustrated (laughs) and with with the idea that, you know, there are there are people around the world, especially young children, dying of malaria. And one of the simplest solutions to prevent that is to get bed nets so that they aren't attacked by mosquitoes in the night. And so this germ of an idea was somehow somehow connected to UN, the UN Foundation. I'm not sure what the, the, the connecting point was, but we became the place where this amazing campaign and organization called Nothing But Nets was started that has delivered bed nets around the world or, or financed the delivery of bed nets around the world, working really closely with UN agencies to get uh, to save save lots of lives um and it's still it's actually still here it's now got a different name in fact it's called because because in fact you know the the malaria fight is is about nets but it's about more than nets right (laughs) so it's now called united to beat malaria and still doing amazing work and we're really proud of that history Ted Turner can be described in many colorful ways, but one accurate description would be to say that he's the ultimate optimist. He's also been remarkably generous with his philanthropy, and I was glad that Elizabeth pointed out that the billion dollars pledged back then was about a third of Ted Turner's wealth. In fact, it was on his flight to New York for the dinner I described, and later, the following day, to be honored by the UN, that Ted got his big idea. Reviewing a financial statement, he realized that in the years since Time Warner had purchased Turner Broadcasting, Ted's personal wealth had grown from $2 billion to $3 billion. He decided that the extra billion didn't make him feel any different and wanted to make a big splash at the UN event. So he figured he'd announce then and there that he would give that billion dollars away. It really was the gift that kicked off the era of mega donations from people like Bill and Melinda Gates, Warren Buffett, and others. And so, for a lot of us, it's really gratifying to hear how well that money has been put to work on the projects Elizabeth describes as the UNF's greatest hits. It's also interesting to note that like Ted's company back in the day, this foundation is nimble and able to turn on a dime in response to sudden global challenges like COVID-19. Getting back to our conversation, I wanted Elizabeth to reflect on the efficiency and relatively low cost of much of the development efforts going on around the world. One of the reasons I think global development can be so exciting and and why we should be optimistic about the potential is so much of it is really just about the intention. It's it's not that expensive. It's not, you know, b- based on compared to American terms, like nothing but nets. 
I forget the bug nets, but I think they were like $5 or something like that. It's yeah, not, not some not fancy piece of equipment. And I'm wondering if, if you can talk about ways that you've been able to be very efficient with funds as you can really improve lives around the world. Well, it's efficiency with funds. It's also efficiency with ideas and knowledge. And, you know, I spent, I'll tell you, I spent yesterday morning uh, in a, a conversation we hosted with a lot of diplomats to the UN and leading poverty experts in the world who are very, on the one hand, we, we can tell an incredible story about how poverty has been decimated over the last 30 years, extreme poverty in particular, from, you know, in the early 1960s, two thirds of the planet lived in extreme poverty. Several years ago, it had dropped to, you know, one tenth. So still way too many people, but still an incredible story. But a lot of that's also been knocked off track in the last several years uh, by COVID and climate and other stresses. And so the question is how to get back on track. And one of the most interesting parts of the discussion was about just how much we know about the interventions that work, whether it's because whether they work in, in economic terms or they work in policy terms uh, or they work in how communities themselves want to try to solve their own challenges and try to, you know, find vehicles to support that. So I think a lot of it, there, there's both the efficiency and the financing part, but there's also really making sure we're benefiting from and learning best practice and what people really know about what works. And, you know, the good news is the solutions are there for almost everything. I mean, there's some that elude us, right? There's some technological solutions that are yet, you know, to be to be developed, but many of them we have. It's just a question of whether we use them and whether we do it equitably, which is a challenge we know we all we all face. So how do you in in your role think about there's so many issues you could be going after and challenges. How do you prioritize? What are your priorities? Um, and, and where do you see and hope the world to be that much better in the next, say, 10 years based on the efforts of the UN Foundation? Yeah, well, we like to say we want to try to work on the least number of most important things. So, <laughs> so you know, really trying for focus. But it is hard. I mean, the world is big. There are a lot of challenges. The UN has a comprehensive agenda of its own. So, you know, we work in that context, but we also are really thoughtful about working where we feel we can really make a contribution. So there are a few big priorities that we've had, honestly, from the beginning, and they've only gotten more intense, climate change and planetary health. We work a lot in climate. We do a lot in global health. We work a lot on on, on gender equity and empowerment for girls and women, which um, is, a, is a struggle that needs to continue, clearly, to go further than we've gone to date. But underneath all of it, the kind of underlying priority for us right now as we look around the world is, is really trying to strengthen, build, and diversify the, the, the base of support for the UN itself. Because it, you know, it's no secret that there is a lot of uh, tension in the world. <laughs> There's a lot of challenge and, and competition and you know, and and, a, and that puts a lot of what the UN does and what the very value of cooperation is at risk. And yet we can't solve any of our big challenges if we don't do it together. So we're doing a lot of work with with young people around the world, for example, to, to think about not only ways that they can be supportive and feed into the work of the UN with their amazing ideas and leadership and communities, um, but how does the UN itself become more relevant and responsive to their needs? You know, half the world's population today is under uh, under 30, and there are 11 billion people who are yet to be born this century. So how do we think about what the UN is going to do for them? 
So we do a lot of work on this, you know, question of, of future generations and how to really be thinking ahead about the kind of challenges the world and its people are going to face and how, you know, organization like the UN and all its partners can really be working on those, you know, smallest number of most important things to make it a better and safer world for them. It's really interesting when, you, when you're talking about the support for the UN, and I may just be making this up, but I feel like when I was their age, um, the UN was in the news more. You heard more about it. You knew the name of the UN, U.S. ambassador. And and now we're so distracted by so many other things, many of them quite trivial, I think, but also, you know, Washington politics and all that stuff. I just feel like it's not as top of mind as it used to be. And maybe that's just my imagination, but I, I think it's real. And I don't know if that's the same around the world and that if that's one of your challenges. You know, I think I think it's hard for almost everyone to get above the fold. If I can use yeah. an old fashioned method. Yeah, right. Since I don't know how many people read papers that have fold. It's a newspaper but, reference. You know what I mean? You don't know that. I so I think that's a general challenge and it is one of distraction. It is one of maybe a little bit of selection bias in the media that chooses things that may be among the less important to focus on, but nonetheless, they dominate attention. So as a general challenge um, within that, you, you're right. I mean, I see the same, the same trend um, though. I think it varies a lot from country to country and region to region. Um, you know, if you look at all kinds of global polling, it's actually even polling in the United States, we do polling in the U S and the UN is, has a consistently, you know, positive rating in the United States. And people don't necessarily, you know, know everything that it does, but it does command a fairly steady level of broad support because of what its job is, you know, to help the world work together to solve problems and because of the role of U.S. leadership in the institution. But I, but it does have a challenge, I think, you know, making its work feel real and relevant to people. Um, that's, am that's among the kinds of issues we're tackling in this work we do with young people. We are, you know, we're, we um, are part of something called the Unlock the Future Coalition, which brings together some of the world's largest youth-focused and youth-led organizations around the world. And it's all about trying to create opportunities for young people to lead in these international spaces so that their ideas, their leadership can really show up, be counted and be influential. So we're doing really fascinating work with, with this very broad and diverse network of, of young people around the world. And they, and they want to show up at the UN because they value it. They value what it stands for. And they might, that doesn't mean they like everything it does. It doesn't mean it touches every aspect of their lives, but they get that it's an important idea and it's something that should thrive and flourish and should be relevant to them and should actually be working for them. You know, so, so we, we're really excited by being able to do that kind of work. It feels like it's part of, you know, it's, it's pretty essential these days. And I think that generation too, just the way they've been raised and technology and everything else, it, they think more globally probably than, than we did growing up, right? It just they're, they're seeing it, they're interacting with it. I recently interviewed Charles Kenny, who wrote um, the Center for Global Development. And I know Charles. <laughs> yeah, brilliant guy. And I have lovely time with him. And he said something towards the end of our conversation. I actually shared it with a high school group a couple of weeks ago. He said, this generation coming up, is the greatest generation in the history of the world. And, and I'm at that like, hey, kid, get off my lawn age, right? So I had, to, I had to digest this, but he said, they're huge in number. They will have the longest life expectancy. They are by far the most tolerant. He said, he said minus their issues around speech and stuff like that. He's like incredibly tolerant, you know, socially. 
Oh, the technophiles, they understand technology. They will create new, as he said, when you multiply all those things together, this is going to be the greatest generation in history. They are going to solve climate change. He gave like this pep talk at the end of our interview that was incredible. And so I, I love hearing you talk about how you want to work with that generation because the more I thought about it, I was like, you know what, he's right. And I, I think the biggest challenge is letting them know that. Because so many of them are so depressed about the future and they worried about having kids because of climate change and the world's going to end in 30 years. And so trying to remind them that there's a lot of things to be optimistic and hopeful about, I think is really important. It sounds like that's part of what you're doing. Yeah. No, and I, I will say we're lucky to work with young people who are are not part of the doom loop. <laughs> They're very much because because, I mean, they it really matters to them and they're doing amazing things in communities in their, around the world. I mean, do it here in the United States and, and, and in so many places. And so um, I get, have the privilege of kind of seeing the young people Charles is talking about, and maybe I should, I should actually connect with them on this work because it's, 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 it's really inspiring. And yeah, it's, it's the best, it's how I get to spend the best part of my days, I have to say. As my guest points out here, there are reasons to be optimistic about global development efforts and the progress being made on important challenges like global poverty. And as Elizabeth says, we know the solutions to so many problems. We just need to work together to implement them. And I love the Unlock the Future Coalition. There are millions of inspiring young people around the world ready to do their part. And sometimes they just need a little help from members of the older generations even if in some situations, that just means us getting out of their way. And now getting back to this blue sky conversation, I asked Elizabeth Cousins to reflect on how the priorities of the UN Foundation, after all these years, still seem to match the causes that the organization's founder believes in so strongly. I think there's no aspect of the UN Foundation that isn't immediately deeply and personally touched by Ted. And I feel incredibly lucky to know him and to have the opportunity to have met this, you know, remarkable force of nature. When he started this institution with that big, bold idea and that much of his net worth, he he didn't give his name to the institution. He named it for the idea and he named it for what it was supposed to do. That already tells you so much about this. I mean, this human who has ferocious ambition has done these giant things in the world, and, I, and, and I'm sure is a, is a, he is a very self confident individual, but but didn't care. But has this humility to not name the thing after himself. So that's the first thing. I mean, you mentioned with nothing but nuts that maybe UNF isn't as much part of the story. Very the DNA of this institution is actually not to take credit. That's one of that's one of the attributes is to it's to focus on the work, focus on the partners. It's all about getting stuff done. And I think that that's that's one of many, many ways. I think that the ambition, you know, that he that he has for the world is, you know, you know, better than I do. He talks about saving everything because it's worth saving. You know, I think that kind of ethos, I see that in every single one of our board members. You know, I really it's really powerful. Um, he believes in take believes in taking risks. His whole life is about taking smart risks, and we try to do that in our in our kind of work. Um, and even things. I mean, you you will of course know this story, but he famously uh, says, "You can't always be right, but you can always be on time." Uh, so there's a there's a there's a mania about punctuality in parts of the organization. Oh, he used to start meetings early. He started meetings early, which was downright unfair. But you learned, and you get there at ten of, and uh, yeah. 
I did. Res- that's one of the things I respect about him, though. He didn't never wasted your time. Yeah, and to your question about you know doom, the other among the many quotes of his that are just so powerful is one about you know it's not much use giving up. It's much more effective to get to work. <laughs> I think that's another you know part of the culture here that I really love and is 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 very much him. So I noticed an, another thread in a couple of your initiatives, an emphasis on on data and digital. So when you mentioned girls and women, something I wouldn't have thought about, but it made instant sense when I when I read about it. Data two X. Can you describe that initiative? Because I found it fascinating. It's a wonderful initiative that started many years ago, and just looking at the data about women in the economy, women in society, uh, and realizing. First of all, that some of the data is compelling, and in many cases, the data is not there. <laughs> Women aren't counted, or data is not disaggregated where you can differentiate whether it's a policy issue or it's a demographic question. Where do women show up? Where do girls show up? So, this initiative called Data 2X, uh, which I think has got one of the coolest names I can think of, a uh, great logo as well, uh, was started to try to improve the quality and quantity of, of what's called gender data for decision making, you know, and it, and it relates to everything from, you know, women being able to, you know, access credit and get bank accounts to, um, you know, girls in censuses to um, understanding health outcomes that can be broken down according to gender to, so it's, it's a really rich um, initiative that is a kind of essential underpinning you know, if, if people aren't showing up in the data, especially today, so back then it was maybe even less, you know, obvious perhaps, but, but especially today, if you aren't, if you aren't kind of showing up in the data around, <laughs> around decisions that get made in a way that is respectful and relevant t- to you, um, you, you're, you know, you are not counted enough and you, and, and you, and you don't, and your rights are not likely to be as, you know, fully respected either. So, well, this just occurred to me, and I may be totally off base, but it seems to me as we as we create artificial intelligence, a lot of it is based on current data, right? So, if you start with a lack of data or bad data, it only gets accentuated with AI. Am I making that up, or is that no, not at all? That, and that would be the case, called- right? There's something called algorithmic bias. That's Thank another you. another one. That's what I meant to you, say. Algorithmic bias. There you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, absolutely. Because if you take where you've been as the baseline for where you're going, and if where you've been has any injustice or inequity baked into it, well, that's not good enough. <laughs> so you, so you, so that's you're absolutely right. I, and I know it's a big issue in, in healthcare. But it always has been that that women have been underreported, underdiagnosed, or and. So, and then another was the Digital Impact Alliance. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we have, we actually, we have three uh, different initiatives that are housed at the UN Foundation that all work on different aspects of data and digital. The Digital Impact Alliance um, was created several years ago to try to drive more coordinated investments in the digital transformation of countries around the world. So, It grew out of a bunch of work that the foundation had been part of related to digital health solutions and a number of the philanthropies who were involved in funding that work and also partners who were part of that work felt like it was kind of fragmented and people weren't connected enough. So uh, the Digital Impact Alliance was created to try to create unity of effort and get more uh, get more learning about what kind of solutions made sense and more concentrated investments and in, in, they could be more transformative in, in, in digital transformation in a lot of different ways beyond health. 
Uh, we also have uh, uh, an initiative called the Global Partnership for Sustainable Development Data that works. Um, it's a partnership of hundreds of real, the, all different aspects of the data communities, data scientists, chief statisticians, uh, private sector, civil society who are who believe in harnessing the data revolution for sustainable development and do all kinds of interesting things with countries around the world. So. Yeah, we're really lucky. And that, that what that means, among other things, I get to be around some people who are seriously so much smarter than I am and who do really amazing things. And, you know, every now and then I, I, I'm able to learn a little bit from them. Ted was also someone who made huge changes in the world through his businesses, you know, whether it was environmental programming or creating CNN, frankly, and having news journalists all over the world. I'm wondering how the UN Foundation continues today to work with people in the business community to advance their goals. Yeah. So, you know, one of our earliest commitments is to work with other partners and to bring new partners into, into the work of the UN and its causes. And business leaders and businesses are, are you know, top, top of that list. Um, so there's, there are very few parts of our work that don't in some ways engage the business sector because they're an essential part of a solution. So I can give you so many examples, but um, we, um, we do a lot of work on sexual and reproductive health and rights, women's reproductive health. Uh, and one of the initiatives we run is something called the Resilience Fund for uh, Girls and Women in Global Supply Chains. And that's a partnership between philanthropies and a number of companies who really wanted to put not only dollars, but also their real commitment as companies to improve the health and well-being of women in their in their industry. Um, so that's just one example. We, we run a network of companies or we support a network of companies called Five for Five, which is companies who or there's there's something called the sustainable development goals. I should have talked to that about that at the beginning. One one of the goals is uh, is all about um, empowerment and equity for girls and women. It's the fifth goal, and so there's a network of companies who are committed to advancing uh, equality for girls and women. Not girls necessarily, but women in their workforces and in their supply chains, and they have created this coalition called Five for Five that works together. There are dozens of companies involved in this. Um, the UN itself does a lot of work with the private sector, um, you know, in all kinds of ways, in-kind support from technology companies, um, advocacy support from really diverse companies around the world. You know, there were, when the UN was starting to, was having to deal with um, the aftershocks of the war in Ukraine around the world, which largely manifests themselves around, around um, food price hikes and, and shortage and disruptions in food and fertilizer supply, who were one, who was one of their main partners, the International uh, Chamber of Commerce and their network of businesses around the world that were, you know, part of helping solve that. So, you know, I don't think there's any, issue on the global scene that doesn't require some kind of involvement from companies. And it's going to vary depending on the issue, but, you know, it's, it's an exciting part of, I think, the new face of what, you know, cooperation looks like now and, and even more into the future. In doing the research for this interview, I was surprised to see how much effort the UN Foundation is putting into data collection and interpretation, but it makes a lot of sense. If you're going to work to help people, the strategies you develop have to respond to measurable needs. And of course, it's important to try to eliminate algorithmic bias, he said, using in a sentence this term he's just learned. As we get back to our conversation, I'll say for context that we recorded this interview in June 
as intense Canadian wildfire smoke had moved from New York and was settled in Washington, D.C. And turning to talk about climate change, I asked Elizabeth to talk about how her organization decides which side of this multifaceted problem they should try to work on. We're constantly asking that question because there is so much to do and there's also so much good work going on. So we always really want to make sure we're coming in in the right way that's truly additive for in the communities with which we work. So a lot of our work is at the kind of intersection of different sectors because we do always have this partnership gene and this bringing up, bringing people together to, to, to forge solutions. So that characterizes a lot of it. Um, we have a long-standing relationship and partnership we've had around climate communication. So that's one first big, big part of it, going way back to try to communicate the science, to try to communicate in ways that is uh, accessible to, to broader segments of the world. That's maybe a little bit of Ted's legacy, too. This started many years ago, working with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, you know, which is, is a body of scientists who, especially back when they started, weren't necessarily as savvy about strategic communications as maybe they now are. And we were we were really, you know, are pleased that we we're a part of that story and have been been for years. But we work and we work a lot around, you know, with 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 different countries who are trying to solve particular dimensions of the climate crisis where, you know, if we think we can at, play a role, we will. So we're doing a lot of work on oceans right now on the decarbonization of shipping, why are we doing that? It's a big issue. <laughs> it needs to be solved. There's actually a critical set of decisions that are coming up uh, over the next year that will set kind of the regulatory terms of shipping going forward. And so we work with a coalition of countries, especially from the Pacific, who have so much more to lose even than the rest of us uh, on in this fight um, and try to, to support their diplomatic efforts to get the right decisions out of some of these UN bodies. We do that kind of work too. Amazing. So- what gets you out of bed in the morning to keep doing this work? You, you, everything you're describing to me, you're, you are describing with great enthusiasm and positivity and optimism. You face all kinds of challenges every day you come to work. What is it that keeps motivating you, keeps you positive and, and hopeful and optimistic? You know, I, I think um, I, I think it's that it's possible. You know, I think it is there are daunting odds in this world, <laughs> very daunting odds. And, and you know, I, I, I am pretty clear-eyed about those, and I think it's important that we look at them honestly. But we also know we can solve every single challenge we face. We may not. It's very possible, right? A lot of things can interfere with that. Politics, distraction, all kinds of uh, pressures. But the fact that it's possible, and we're at this window in time where it's going to be decisive. I mean, this is, this, this is the thing. The, ne the next several years will be decisive for every child of the future. Our own children, clearly, but also the future, the future of humanity. And that's really heavy to think about, right? It's really heavy. And it's not like I come to work every day thinking I'm gonna save humanity. I mean, that would be a little bit ridiculous, but I, but I am motivated by thinking every day I can make a little bit of a difference and the issues we work on matter and we're lucky enough to work with, you know, um, people with amazing integrity and commitment. Um, and, and that's super inspiring. So, and it's not like every day is inspiring. I have days when I think, Oh, I don't want to go to work. Who doesn't? Right. But I feel really motivated by the kind of urgency of the moment and the possibility of it. 
you know, and all I have to do is get into one of these conversations with these young people I was describing before. And if I'm feeling a little bit down or a little bit distracted, they buck me up and they're so much smarter than I am. I mean, I, that I love. <laughs> well, and that's, and that's one of the things that excites me about the work that I'm doing and talking to folks like you, because these stories aren't told. And so, so what, you know, the, your basic news consumption is all that went wrong today. And meanwhile, 95% of what was going on was actually quite positive. I talked to a guy named Richie Davidson who works at in the University of Wisconsin. He's a, a neuroscientist. And he said, our brains are, are, are designed to detect difference. And so one of the reasons bad news stands out is that it's actually the exception, not the rule. And it was a different way of thinking about it. Yeah. And, and it's kind of reassuring because it's like, it's not just one of the reasons it gets your eyeballs is because it's different and it's unique and it's, you're not seeing it in your day to day. And so we got to counter that, I think. And so the way you just described all these remarkable people that you work with every day and the incredible work they're doing and nobody knows their names and nobody knows the organizations or few do. It's really important that we try to tell the stories. Well, and every now and then there's just news in the paper. I mean, the other day I was reading about a coalition of businesses, community leaders, city leaders in Arizona and it, work that they're doing to conserve water resources in, in very inventive ways. Or, or in the Yakima River Basin, which is the state I'm from. I mean, where there's a kind of different way of collaborating around that challenge. And, you know, that is also inspiring. Yeah. And I think I think also as the impacts of climate change get more real, we before we started recording, we were both comparing stories about being in the smoke the last few days. And if that doesn't get your attention, when when New York City looks like Mars um, because of fires that are actually close, but not that close, uh, you, you just realize this is serious and, and we're all in it. And I think COVID, I think COVID helped us with that too, because it was a truly global challenge. It wasn't an isolated event on this continent or this island over here. It was all of us. And so I hope we can learn the lessons from that and work together better going forward. So Elizabeth Cousins, I thank you so much for the work you're doing. As a uh, as a uh, huge fan of Ted Turner's, it warms my heart to see that this thing he cares so much about is in such good, capable hands uh, under your stewardship. I really appreciate it. And I know you're very busy, so I appreciate you also taking this time to speak with me today. It's really been a lot of fun. Well, it's been an incredible pleasure. It was great to be with you. The UNF's choice to work to clearly communicate climate science is a wise one as there's so much for the average non-scientific person like myself to take in that it can be challenging. And I was surprised to hear her mention decarbonizing shipping, as it's not something you hear a lot about, but once you do, you realize it's a big opportunity. And with all these things, Elizabeth expresses an optimism that's tempered by a sense of urgency. It's possible, she says, but then later adds, the next few years will be decisive. All wise words from a great leader of an important organization. Thanks for listening to this Blue Sky episode with UN Foundation President and CEO Elizabeth Cousins. If you have feedback to offer, please leave us a review or reach out via the Optimism Institute website or our social media pages. And please consider subscribing to Blue Sky to be sure you don't miss any future episodes. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke, 
and I thank you for listening. <laughs>